We're going to be in Revelation 14 tonight, so if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles there to Revelation chapter 14. Uh, but I feel like I need to give you a little bit of a background, because what we're about to see in Revelation 14 is not the first time that the Bible speaks of this happening. Um, this is actually a, something that's prophesied in the Psalms. Psalm chapter 2. Just listen to me as I read from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for Me, I have set My King on Zion, My holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to Me, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. Ask of Me and I will make the nations Your heritage and the ends of the earth Your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. What the psalmist is talking about is one of those, something that often happens in prophecy where there's an immediate context where it seems to have some meaning today in the here and now, but all of its meaning isn't in the here and now. There is a future fulfillment, a perfect fulfillment, if you will. And so, so the prophecy has a, a now aspect and a later aspect. There's something that's happening today or in the near future, and then there's something that's happening in time to come. This psalm is one of those that has that dual nature to it because the person of whom it's talking about, the king, this is something that was actually promised to David at his coronation. God promised David that your sons will sit on the throne and will rule over Israel. And that one day he would have a son that would reign over the nations. That was something that was promised to David by God. And he says in Psalm 2, specifically in verse 6, that his king is established on Zion, my holy hill. In Revelation chapter 14, we see the king on Zion. Why don't we stand? Stand with me as we read the first five verses of Revelation 14. I looked. And behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and for the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found for they are blameless. Pray with me. 
Father, as we approach your word tonight, may we give the King the glory that he is due. Help us to understand your word. Help us to apply it to our lives. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Revelation 14. If, if I were to preach this chapter without Revelation 13, it wouldn't be half as good. We think back to Revelation 13. In 13, we see two beasts. There is the first beast that rises from the sea. He is the Antichrist of Antichrists. An Antichrist is just someone who is preaching a false message, uh, preaching as though he is Christ when he is not, claiming to be God's anointed one when he is not. Anybody can be an Antichrist, but this is an Antichrist of Antichrists. He is the one that is making the ultimate blasphemies, the one who is drawing people away from God toward Him with brutal efficiency. He has great power. He has great authority. He has a mortal wound that is healed. And people begin worshiping this beast, saying of Him, who's like the beast? Who can fight against Him? Making Him out to be God. This beast lying blaspheming is being worshipped. And then there's a second beast that comes up out of the sea, out of the land. And this beast, well he, if, if just as the Holy Spirit witnesses to Christ, this second beast is the anti-prophet for the anti-Christ. He is the one who is testifying to the anti-Christ to get people to follow him. He's the one that woos people with smooth talk. He's the one who's deceiving. He's the one who gets people to worship the beast and his image. Who gets people to receive the mark of this beast. And as soon as he's finished talking about the counterfeit, he turns to Mount Zion and he sees the original. As soon as he is finished describing the fake Christ, and his prophet, he turns and he sees the true Christ. Then I looked and behold on Mount Zion. If you look in a map, it will probably show Mount Zion as just outside of the city of Jerusalem. When the mountains around the city, there are several mountains around the city. The city itself is on a mountain, but there are several mountains around it. It's in a mountain range and, and one of those is called Mount Zion. That's unfortunate um, because... In Jesus' day, Mount Zion referred to Jerusalem itself. And since the Temple Mount was on top of the highest part of the city of Jesus' day, when you're talking about Mount Zion, you are talking about the Temple of God. So I imagine that when he looks and he sees on Mount Zion, he is actually looking at the Temple and he is seeing the rightful God, His Anointed One, standing in His house, ready to do His work. So here we have... Oh, by the way, there's another thing here that's really interesting. Chapter 13. Since we're comparing Antichrist and real Christ. Chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Then in verse 11, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. But notice what the Lamb is doing. He's not rising. He's standing. Rising is this, this inclination of it's in progress... Standing has this implication of it's already happened. This is the Lamb who has been standing from before the foundation of the world on the spiritual Mount Zion. The one who from time immemorial 
begotten, not made, has stood before the presence of God. And yet here, these beasts, these false Christs, they can't, they can't be standing. They have to rise. They have to come up. They have to start, but not the true Christ. He didn't have to start. He was already. That's important. By the way, he, he will be standing at the end of all this. And they will not be rising anymore. They will be fallen. But the Lamb still stands. Then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. But He's not alone. And with Him, 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. This is our first introduction since chapter 7 to the 144,000 by this number. We know that from the last couple of chapters that there has been persecution on the people who are following Jesus of this time. Now, I've said before, and I'll say again, I don't know whether that includes all of us or whether that includes just a certain population. I don't know, okay? It's just not clear. But I do know this. There are some folks that God has marked on the forehead that are enduring this tribulation and they are the ones that are standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion. I'm almost certain. Only because, where else do you find the number 144,000? I mean, I mean that, it's there. He wrote that for a reason. I'm almost certain these are the same 144,000 that that angel wrote through and marked as God's possession. Let me also say this. I kind of said it the other week um, when I was talking about the second beast. But let me reiterate it you're not going to accidentally receive that mark. If you go get a COVID-19 vaccine when it comes out eventually, if it ever comes out, it's not going to be the mark of the beast. That, that's hogwash. A nanochip implanted in your skin without you knowing about it is not going to be the mark of the beast. You will full well know when the beast is marking folks. Whether we're here to see it or not, it'll be obvious. Because those will be the ones receiving the mark that are the ones worshiping the beast. They've already made their choice. And the marked of God, they've already made their choice. They have already dedicated themselves to God's work. They are already children of God. They are already His when He marks them. He's just marking them so His angels know who doesn't receive His wrath. And now in chapter 14, we see these 144,000 again, and they are standing with the Lamb. Boy, that's a sermon. Are you standing with the Lamb? They're standing with Him. They have His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. Just like God promised to the church in Philadelphia back in chapter 3. I'll write my name on them. They are marked, sealed, promised by God to be protected from His wrath. Those standing with the Lamb, there's some distinctive features about them. One is that they're with the Lamb. Second is that they're marked that tells us who they are. That identifies them because, because everyone else is marked with a completely different mark. So these guys stand out because they don't have the beast's mark. They have God's mark. Now, is it visible? In some ways, maybe. In some ways, maybe not. I can't tell you you're going to have something stamped on your forehead. It's not like the priests in the tabernacle and the temple who wore this gold, high priest wore this golden uh, uh, thing on his turban that said, Holy to the Lord. Kadosh Ladonai, right across his head. It's not like that. Okay? 
Maybe, maybe, maybe it's something visible. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just a spiritual mark of sorts. Maybe it's just something that you don't see marked on them, but they, they obviously don't have the other mark. And boy, do they look different too. They act different. They talk different. They don't worship the beast. Believe me, they'll stick out like a sore thumb whether, whether you can see that mark or not. Everybody will know whose they are. That's the funny thing about this. We live in a day and age where people can hide you say one thing, you show a, show a face, you, you make it seem like something, and then, well, you're not really the same person when nobody's looking. Can't do that in this day. This day it's going to be clear, but they don't mind being clear. I want the kind of faith that is willing to stand with the Lamb, marked with His mark, and be completely noticed and not be afraid. I want that kind of faith. There's something else interesting about this group. And I heard, verse 2, a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. There's this great mighty sound. Normally when there's a sound like this, normally when there's this mighty noise, when you're talking about a voice like thunder, you're talking about God's voice. But in this case, it seems to be the 144,000. Listen, verse 3. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. There's this new song that's ringing out from the heavens. And the only ones able to sing it are this group that's redeemed. You see, when God, when God does something, it often motivates us to praise Him. And sometimes, the hymn book just doesn't have the right song for the occasion. In fact, no hymn book has the right song for the occasion. You look around, you think, and you think, oh, I mean, look at all, everything that He did. I want to find a song to capture all of this. And, and so you start looking, and, and you look at songs like Amazing Grace. And yes, it's wonderful, but it doesn't really, it, it just doesn't describe it. You go back into some of the psalms, Oh, these are beautiful, but they're just, it's just not it. it. It just doesn't really fit. And so the only option left, when you exhaust all of the vast resources of hymnody over the last thousands of years that Jews and Christians have put together to sing praises to God and none of them work, the only thing left is to make up a whole new song. There's just nothing else you can do. To praise God well, in this moment, you have to sing something that no one has ever been able to sing before. And the only ones who can sing it, whether that's physical ability, or whether it's the only ones who had been through the experience and could sing knowing it firsthand. The only ones who can are those who are marked and redeemed by the Lamb by whom they stand. And their voice is like thunder ringing through the heavens in glorious melody of praise. Something else this verse tells me about this group. It's that word redeemed. 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 That, that, okay. The picture is someone is a slave and someone comes, pays their master, and buys them out of slavery. That's the picture. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. This is why, even when it's, some people want to say that abortion is about a woman's choice of what she does to her body, 
The problem is her body doesn't belong to her. Her body belongs to the Lord. If we are children of God, our bodies belong to God, He is the one that ought to be making the choice of what we do with it. Whether it's about abortion, or whether it's about what we're doing in our free time, or whether it's about where we're going, or about the things that we put into it, or the things that we should be doing with it instead of sitting on the couch eating Cheetos. You see, if we took this really seriously, we would recognize that God has bought us. We belong to Him. This 144,000, they're redeemed. So are we, by the way. Those of us who follow Christ, those of us who have surrendered to Him, you've been redeemed by His blood. And sometimes I just wonder if we forget that because we act like we're in charge. He goes on to describe them. In verse 4, a, a little bit of context here. When Israel was to go into battle, think back to them conquering the promised land. Before they conquered the promised land, they were told to consecrate themselves. Before they even entered the promised land. Before they crossed over the Jordan River, God told Joshua, Con- tell the Israelites, consecrate yourselves because on the third day we're moving in. Before the Israelites, when they came to Mount Sinai, before Moses went up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, God commanded that all of Israel would consecrate themselves. Whenever God is about to do something, He calls for His people to consecrate themselves. And one of the things that He calls for, especially in a time of war, is for the men to separate themselves so that they will not be defiled. The call is, I don't want you distracted by anything else. I don't want you focusing on anything other than the task at hand. Consecrate yourself. Dedicate yourself to this purpose. That's why in verse 4 it's talking about them not defiling themselves with women. The whole implication is they are solely focused on doing the work of God and on fighting the battle with the Lamb. They're not distracted by anything else. They're not turning their eyes to look at other things. They're not, they're not letting their minds wander into things that are less important. They are focused on the task at hand because it is the most important thing for them to do. And they realize everything else has to be set aside. There's nothing wrong. Nothing wrong with being married. But sometimes, sometimes you've just got to focus yourself so maybe, maybe, maybe we should do, um, this kind of thing sometimes. Not just this specifically, but well, think of fasting. If you fast, you're saying, God, I, I, I want to hear from you. I want to know your will. I want to do your will. And it's so important to me that I'm willing to skip my meals. I'm willing to deprive my body of food and dedicate that time to seeking your will. Fasting isn't about getting a medal on your chest. It's not about Look at how great I am. I did it one time. A 30-hour famine. I don't know if y'all have heard of this, but this is a fundraiser for World Vision um, that they get high school high schoolers to do and college students, you know, that age, especially do it a lot. I did my 30-hour famine. I started counting as soon as I was finished eating a meal. And then I ate as soon as 30 hours was over. That didn't. It, that really wasn't a 30-hour famine. And I got to be honest with you, I was a, I was a proud person. <laughs> I'll put it nicely. I was, I was a little too proud of myself for doing that. God quickly showed me that ain't really all that impressive. I missed it. I missed the point. What if we deprived ourselves of the most basic means and earnestly sought God's will? 
maybe you're diabetic, or maybe you have health problems or take medicines that you have to eat every so often. I'm not telling you, like, endanger your life. But I am saying, what if we became so focused on doing God's will that we were willing to give up anything and everything that would get in the way, no matter how basic it may be to our survival? The 144,000 here have that kind of dedication to the Lamb. He continues, It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. I think it's kind of funny because Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary, Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. But in reality, it ought to be reversed, shouldn't it? The lamb may have a Mary following him wherever he may go. That dedication, that willingness to give up everything to follow Christ, that's not unique with this 144,000. That ought to be true of every single one of us. But in that day, when the rest of the world is following the beast, boy, is it going to stand out. I also thought about Thessalonians. First Thessalonians 4, when it talks about the rapture, and he says that he calls them up to meet him in the air. Then it says, so they will forevermore be with him. Once, once Christ calls his people to himself, we follow them around like little ducklings following mother duck. Wherever he goes, we follow. What a beautiful picture of what the Christian life ought to be. How, how different would our lives look if we were seeking to follow Christ every step that he took? Not just trying to find some way to, 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 to see Christ in where we are. Not just trying to get Christ to kind of go along with what we're doing. What if we were so in tune with him that we waited for him to move and then we moved with him? I think, again, Israelites in the desert. God moves, they pick up camp and they move. Thankfully, God didn't pull any practical jokes and suddenly dart off. He moved slow enough that they could follow. But what if that's what our lives look like? What if we were following Him so well, so closely, that everywhere He goes, there we are too. So in touch with His Spirit. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God. And for the Lamb. You talk about first fruits. Well, that's, that, that gets into a promise, doesn't it? I mean, first fruits. The whole idea of first fruits is this is the first you get. You dedicate it to God so that when He blesses you with more, you are using all of that according to His will. You see, God doesn't get 10%. Some people think the tithe is what God gets. God doesn't get 10%. If you're doing this the right way, God gets 100%. It's just the first bit of it goes directly to Him and the other bit of it goes to Him by you using it in ways that honor and please Him. See, all of it's His. He deserves all of it. And if we're willing to give Him the first fruits and to recognize that all of this is His and that we are stewards of it, then we'll be reminded that when we spend the other 90% or how much it happens to be after those offerings, that we're using it for His glory. That completely changes the way you spend your money. Makes you think twice about all of the waste. Makes you think twice about putting money into things that just aren't worth it. It is these in whom, verse 5, in their mouth no lie was found. You want to know another difference between this group and the group in chapter 13? The beasts in 13 are lying every time they open the mouths. And yet in these, there is no lie found in their mouth. They don't need to lie. They don't want to lie. 
and have truth. See, if you can't, if you can't tell the truth, you have no choice but to lie. If you can't accept the truth and you can't admit the truth and you can't validate the truth, you have no choice. You have to lie. And I learned a long time ago that it's a lot easier to tell the truth than to remember how you lied. <laughs> Anybody else learn that the hard way? You start lying and then you you lie different ways to different people and you lose track and then it all falls apart. We have truth. We don't need to lie. You see, the problem with the world is they don't have truth. They can't help but lie. Not true of us. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the lie. And because we have truth, we do not need to lie. The last thing it says, for they are blameless. Now, does that mean they are innocent? No. Blameless and innocent are very different. Innocent means you haven't done anything wrong. Blameless is there's no reason to blame you. See, they've been redeemed. Their sins have been atoned for. And because they're atoned for, there's no longer any condemnation. There's no longer any blame. This 144,000, it shows us what our lives could be. Could be if we were willing to give up everything else and to serve God alone. What would it look like if the Christian church of today forgot about all the mess and made a beeline straight to Jesus? If all we wanted was to be like Him, if all we wanted was to follow Him, if all we cared about was doing His work, being His disciples, I'll tell you what it would look like. It would look like a growing family of God. People out here are desperate. And they're not desperate for church the way they've always seen it. They're desperate for a church that looks like Jesus. Father, may we be the church that looks like you. May we be standing with the Lamb. May we be following Him wherever He goes. May we be devoted to Your will. May we, may we show who You are. May we stick out like sore thumbs in the midst of a world that is bowing before all sorts of idols. In the midst of a world that is telling all sorts of lies. In the midst of a world who doesn't know You. May we be weird enough, strange enough, peculiar enough, odd enough, different enough that it opens doors and opens hearts to your gospel. And then may we take those chances to grow your kingdom. We'll plant, we'll water. It's up to you to grow it. Lord, help us do our part so you can do yours. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.